You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Nothing would be more tiresome than eating and drinking if God had not made them a pleasure as well as a necessity. Voltaire. But what if you were allergic to all the food in the pantry and eating them made you sick? Join me at the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Mark Rothenberg. Dr. Rothenberg is a professor of pediatrics and director of the Division of Allergy and Immunology at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center and the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. He is an acknowledged expert on the molecular mechanisms of allergic disorders and was the recipient of the 2007 Emmy Johnson Award from the Society for Pediatric Research. Today we are discussing eosinophilic esophagitis. Welcome, Dr. Rothenberg. And thank you for taking the time to join us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Pleasure to be here. Tell me, eosinophil esophagitis, what is this disease? This disease is a primary inflammatory disease, a swelling of the esophagus that causes esophageal dysfunction in people of all different ages, and it's associated with eosinophils, a type of white blood cell. How do you become allergic to so many foods? Is it related to the processed foods that we're eating or the additives? Do we have any clues? Well, the immune system is constantly challenged with a lot of different foreign substances. Every time you eat a meal, one's body needs to say, is this a safe exposure or is it unsafe? And this particular disorder, the immune system has a problem with recognizing food allergens or food antigens from healthy substances that should be encountering versus um, pathogens or danger-toxic signals. My godfather... Dr. Joe Belanti years ago spoke about immune dysfunction secondary to antigen persistence due to defects in antigen processing. Is this disorder caused by any kind of a failure to eliminate common allergens? As far as we know, that would be a theory that could be certainly uh, operational, but there's no current evidence to support that. It is an underdeveloped area of research. It's a newly recognized disease, and we certainly have a lot more questions than we have answers for, and that's another example of that. What would be the most common clinical presentation in children? Well, the presentation depends upon the age of the individual. The symptoms associated with this disease are very um, nonspecific. They can be general GI complaints. In young children, it's often failure to thrive. In other words, they don't gain weight appropriately. Older kids may have a problem with vomiting. Subsequently, they develop problems with abdominal pain as you become a toddler and school-age child. As a patient becomes older, an adolescent or teenager, and into adulthood, the chief symptoms become more associated with the dysfunction of the esophagus, causing difficulty swallowing and food getting stuck in this esophagus. Now, I understand that occasionally other segments of the intestinal tract are involved. How frequently does this occur, and does that present a different pattern of symptoms? Well, there's a whole spectrum of diseases associated with chronic allergies affecting the GI tract, and we call those diseases in general EGID, or eosinophil-associated GI disorders. Eosinophilic esophagitis is just one of many of these types of problems. As a spectrum of diseases, and there can be involvement and overlap between all of them, so in general, EE is associated only with the esophagus, but there are patients, probably 20 to 30% of the patients, that subsequently develop other problems in the intestinal tract. I'm a pediatrician, and again, in my readings, there's a high-frequency diagnosed at one year of age and under, at least probably 20% according to the eight-year study you published. I see a lot of fussy babies who reflux. 
when and why should I think of eosinophilic esophagitis, and when should I refer them? Well, Bill, you're full of good questions today. Our approach in terms of looking for these more uncommon problems is to find out if your patient who's having those reflux-like symptoms is responding to therapy and is really suffering great consequences from the problem. These patients are generally the patients that keep on having symptoms despite coming back to the specialist, despite using conventional therapy. These are severe patients that have persistent symptoms. Then one should consider alternative diagnoses, and then this would be one of the things to pursue. Can children be born with this? Well, actually, if you look at our studies, we find that the most common age below this disease runs from, from infancy to senior citizens. The most common age is the first year of life. Are you born with it the day you come out into this world? We don't know the answer to that question, but, but certainly uh, we have people presenting in the first couple of weeks of life with these particular problems, and the first one or two years of life is a very high period of vulnerability. I'm just going to pause for a moment to let our listeners know they are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and my guest today is Dr. Mark Rothenberg, Professor of Pediatrics and Director of the Division of Allergy and Immunology at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. We're talking about the age at which eosinophilic esophagitis may present. You mentioned that we don't know whether they're born with it. Are there any ways of picking it up, such as in the reflux fluid itself? Can you look for eosinophils? Is there anything that would point a pediatrician to saying, ah, this is just not the normal kid who spits up a lot? Uh, at present, we don't have any what we call non-invasive diagnostic testing for these particular problems, Bill. So this diagnosis depends upon seeing a specialist, a gastroenterologist, and having an endoscopy, putting a tube down the GI tract through the mouth, and then taking a look and actually getting biopsies. That's really the only way to formally diagnose the problem. I was going to ask if breastfeeding made a difference. As far as we know, we haven't really found an effect of breastfeeding on this particular problem. But in terms of the, uh, the pediatrician that's out there with these kids, that are, when should they consider this diagnosis? Well, first of all, this disease is highly associated with allergies. So if you have a kid that has severe eczema or recurrent food allergy, in other words, people that actually have food anaphylaxis, allergic acute reactions to foods, or people that have asthma, and they then develop GI symptoms that are refractory to conventional therapy and they're persistent and chronic, that's when you want to begin to think about these problems. If you had a family with a child, either with extensive allergic disease, especially if the parents were involved too, or their first child had EE, would you put a subsequent sibling on an elemental formula to begin with? Um, no, we don't recommend that. We don't empirically treat these children, and there's actually not a great deal of evidence at all to support that you can prophylax in terms of prevent the disease from modifying the diet. In fact, some of the latest theories about the development of food sensitization indicate that early exposures to food are probably beneficial rather than elimination of those before the development of the allergy. It sounds like the old children on a farm have less allergies than the children who live locked up in a city apartment. That's right. That's maybe an old concept, but it's reemerged as a primary theory in, in the allergy epidemic today. So maybe the American Academy of Pediatrics is wrong and we should give these kids solid foods early in life. That's um, one of the debated and hot topics in the field. At present, um, it's recommended that highly allergenic foods are avoided in the first couple of years of life. However, in some countries where foods, particularly peanut, are introduced in the first year of life, it turns out that the incidence of peanut allergy 
in Israel, for example, is one-tenth the rate it is in the United States. It happens to be that Israel is a country where, where little kids go on food that's enriched in peanut in the first couple of months of life. That's fascinating. How did that come about? How did that come about in terms of the finding? Well, not only the finding, but you know, sort of to choose a diet high in peanuts. What, what triggered them or suggested to them that that was a good idea, or there are just a lot of peanuts in Israel? Well, there's a particular type of food product that's designed for babies. It's a high-quality product that's commercially uh, marketed in this particular country that is uh, based with a peanut as the primary protein source. It looks physically like cheese doodles, but it's really not made of cheese. It's made of uh, primarily peanuts. It's called Bamba. And interesting enough, the United States government, through the National Institute of Health, is now sponsoring a trial, an international trial, where they're introducing this particular product called Bamba in children, and they're testing whether or not this is going to have an effect on the incidence of peanut allergy. With all the fast food snacks in this country, that might not be a bad thing to make available to uh, the population in general. I certainly see a lot of kids coming into my office eating cheese doodles. Right. As we got into the discussion, we got past the incidence question, and it seems like it's being diagnosed more frequently. What currently is the incidence in the general population, and of course specifically in the pediatric age groups? What we can say about the incidence is that it's a growing, increasingly recognized disorder that some specialists like allergists and gastroenterologists are seeing on a regular basis. So here in Cincinnati Children's Hospital, where we have a particular center focused on this called the Cincinnati Center for Eosomelic Disorders, we're seeing about three new patients per week and about five to 20 follow-ups each week, depending upon the particular week in the schedule. So uh, there's an abundance of patients here. Now, in terms of the formal epidemiology, there has not been complete agreement upon this. However, we've calculated based on statistical analysis and epidemiology that about 1 in 10,000 children in this particular area around our hospital are developing this per year. Now, Bill, this may seem like a low number to you, but this means that in an average-sized city like Cincinnati, there are going to be hundreds and hundreds of new cases per year being recognized. And when you translate that into the U.S., you're talking about tens of thousands of cases of this disease existing. And this isn't only a disease in Cincinnati nor in the United States, but very similar estimates of the incidents have been calculated in Europe, and now the same data is emerging from Australia. With that sort of frequency... Is this a disease or is it a normal variant, kind of a hay fever of the gut? Well, uh, you might want to call it both of those things. It is a disease, in my opinion. It's a medical affliction that's particularly characterized by certain features that I discussed with you, specifically pathological reproducible features, and we would call that a, a particular disease, and it has a certain inheritance pattern and a genetic association, really classifying it as a classic disease, newly described. But it is strongly associated with allergy, and, you know, calling it a hay fever of the gut might particularly work, although we don't think hay fever itself is the driving force. Although I did read something about inhalant allergens perhaps being also a trigger for esophageal eosinophilia. Well, Bill, like usual, you've done your homework today. You're certainly up to date on the research, and that is indeed true. What we know is that in, in animal model systems, we can induce this whole disease by exposing those animals to different types of allergens, particularly uh, allergens that they breathe in. And in fact, uh, this disease does have seasonal variation in patients, and depending upon the season and the pollen sensitization, for example, that can have direct consequences on the allergic reaction, not only in the respiratory tract, but now recently we've been able to show in the GI tract, particularly in the esophagus. 
So this is new data that's emerging, and we think that although the disease is primarily triggered by what you eat, it can also be triggered by what you're breathing. We're coming close to the end of our session. Do you have a take-home message for a practicing physician? Yes, Bill. The take-home message here is that eosinophilic esophagitis is not an uncommon disease, and one should think about this disease when you have refractory GI symptoms that aren't responding to conventional therapy, particularly for reflux disease. It's important to diagnose this disease because the therapy is quite different than uh, that associated with other types of GI disorders because it involves allergen avoidance and also anti-inflammatory therapy. I want to thank Dr. Mark Rothenberg, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing eosinophilic esophagitis. I am Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. I wish you good day and good health.